you're about to enter into a new world of knowledge, curiosities, and high strangeness. This is a podcast of Straight Up Strange Productions. In the autumn of 1888, a time known as the Autumn of Terror, probably the most notorious of all serial killers, Jack the Ripper, stalked the streets of London's East End. But today's episode isn't about that, although it is somewhat Ripper-adjacent. A letter from Chief Inspector John Littlechild, discovered in 1993, named a suspect in the case who had a lengthy criminal history on this side of the pond. A suspect who pretentiously referred to himself as an MD, though in reality he had no medical experience whatsoever. I'm Andrew Gable, and this is Episode 71, Dr. Francis Tumbledy. Matchin once wrote that strange things are lost and forgotten in obscure corners of the newspaper. Welcome to Forgotten Darkness, a podcast that will aim to prove that that statement is true. been carried on for more than a century by that point, the trade in remedies of dubious medicinal value exploded in the 19th century. Many of the so-called patent medicines or miracle cures were merely mixtures which relieved the symptoms but didn't actually do anything to cure whatever disease it might have been meant to cure. Many of these elixirs contained things like opium or alcohol, which might make the patient not notice the symptoms as much, but little else. Of course, this was probably due in many cases to the practitioners having little if any real medical experience, being more hype man than doctor. Under the headline Mendacity of Quacks, the Boston Medical and Surgical Journal published the following in 1875. If Satan has ever succeeded in compressing a greater amount of concentrated mendacity into one set of human bodies above every other description, it is in the advertising quacks. The coolness and deliberation with which they announce the most glaring falsehoods are really appalling. A recent arrival in San Francisco, whose name might indicate that he had his origin in the Pontine Marshes of Europe, announces himself as the late examining physician of the Massachusetts Infirmary in Boston. This fellow has the impudence to publish that his charge to physicians in their own cases is $5. Another genius in Philadelphia, of the bogus diploma breed, who claims to have founded a new system of practice and who calls himself a professor, advertises two elixirs of his own make, one of which is for all male diseases and the other for all female diseases. In the list of preparations which this wretch advertises for sale as the result of his own labors and discoveries is ozone. Besides pushing their bogus medical claims, Many of these traveling doctors also provided illegal abortions, 
Quite often, when the quack doctor said in advertisements that they could cure quote-unquote female disease, the disease they spoke of was unwanted pregnancy. The annals of old-time murder, in particular, are rife with cases of women being poisoned in the course of seeking an abortion and having God only knows what sort of chemical substances administered to them by traveling quacks who most of the time couldn't care less what their cures did. And if they did get caught and charges were pursued, it was usually a simple matter to move on to another city, change your name, and go on following the same path. Some of these quack doctors became quite notorious in their time. One was the figure called in various newspaper reports, the Prince of Quacks, a notorious quack, an unconscionable quack, or more sympathetically, as an English millionaire, a public benefactor, or a modern-day Count of Monte Cristo. He was a man of imposing physical appearance, being reputedly over six feet tall. He was well known for his extravagant mustache and long black hair, though he later cut it short. He was also quite flamboyant, with a penchant for wearing pseudo-military dress, complete with medals, or for parading around the streets accompanied by two greyhounds and an honorage of servants. His name was Francis Tumbledy. We don't know a whole lot about Francis Tumbledy's early years, most of it being from second-hand sources. His birth seems to have been someplace or sometime around 1830, with his place of birth being reported most often as Ireland, England, or Nova Scotia, although Rochester, New York resident W.C. Streeter later recalled that he believed it was Tumbledy's father James who was Irish, and that he himself had been born in Rochester. However, Timothy Reardon has found evidence that the Tumbledys emigrated to the United States from either County Roscommon or County Westmeath in 1847. James, his wife Margaret, Francis, and his ten siblings lived on Plymouth Avenue or Sophia Street as it was called in those days. One of his brothers was apprenticed to a local doctor named Fitzhugh. And it was shortly after this that Francis entered a similar profession in 1850. Another Rochester native by the name of Edward Haywood recalled Tumbledy years later. I remember him very well when he used to run about the canal in Rochester, New York. A dirty, awkward, ignorant, uncared-for, good-for-nothing boy. He was utterly devoid of education. The only training he had ever had for the medical profession was in a little drugstore at the back of the arcade, which was kept by a Dr. Lispinard, who carried on a medical business of a disreputable kind. Dr. Lispinard's real name was Ezra J. Reynolds. Reynolds was a legitimate doctor, though it appears he operated a, a separate practice at 14 Exchange Street under the Lispinard name to deal with matters of a more sensitive nature, a practice which consisted mainly of a treatment of sexually transmitted diseases called secret diseases in an 1856 advertisement for his services. It's typically reported that at this time, Tumbledy sold pornography to crews of the canal boats, but this might not be quite true. As Timothy Reardon points out in his book on Tumbledy, the actual quote by W.C. Streeter was, The kind Anthony Comstock suppresses now. Comstock was a, was a postal inspector and moralist, and while the Comstock law that he got passed did prohibit the mailing of pornography, quite a few medical and anatomical texts fell under its purview as well. It's therefore pretty likely that what Tumbledy was actually distributing was Dr. Lispinard's practical private medical guide, 
the book the 1856 ad quoted above was for. A book on sexually transmitted disease would, after all, likely fall into the category described. By 1852, Tumblety had branched out on his own. And just as Ezra J. Reynolds operated under the guise of fictitious French medical man Dr. Lispinard, so Tumblety set himself up under the fictional identity of the, of the German Dr. Sternberg. Perhaps the Dr. Sternberg practice didn't work out, or perhaps he and Reynolds had a falling out, because he soon undertook another apprenticeship under another doctor named Rudolf Lyons. It seems that it was Lyons who was the biggest influence on Tumblety, because while he treated the same sexual dysfunctions as did Reynolds slash Lispinard, he also worked as what he billed as an Indian herb doctor, essentially a quack or snake oil salesman. Around 1855, Lyons left Rochester for Detroit, and Tumblety followed. I couldn't find much on his time in Detroit, although a later article in the Detroit Free Press remarks that he did the medical business here until he played out. This apparently didn't take long, because by 1856 he crossed the Canadian border and set up shop in Toronto. In May, he was fined for insulting a female patient of his in London, Ontario, having asked her to clean the dust off his coat for him. Later that same year, he consulted with an area farmer who was unable to provide Tumblety with a $25 fee that he asked. When Tumblety attempted to take the farmer's watch as payment instead, he was arrested. Shortly thereafter, Tumblety left Toronto. Tumblety himself claims that he was asked to run for the parliamentary seat for Montreal West against Thomas Darcy McGee, though he declined. His Canadian troubles didn't stop there, however. He next turns up in Montreal, where the following letter to the editor of the Montreal Pilot appears on September 16th. When a new doctor takes up his residence amongst us, apparently without or perhaps colonial diploma, should not the medical men of the city call the attention of the chief magistrate to the fact? Failing redress in that quarter, let them find out a case where some poor unfortunate being has been made miserable for life by, by swallowing some horrible mixture destructive to both stomach and bowels, and thereon take legal proceedings. A week after this notice appeared, on September 21st, 1857, a police detective named Samard came to see Tumblety at his premises on Great St. James Street. He claimed a family member of his was, in the family way, and inquired about whether he could prescribe medicine that would precipitate a miscarriage. Tumblety answered in the affirmative and charged $20 for the service. The next day, Samard returned, accompanied by a 17-year-old girl named Philomene Dumas. Tumblety gave the girl some medicine and pills. Samard gave him the agreed-upon $20. Within four hours, the doctor was arrested after what was, to modernize, a fairly transparent ploy. It turned out that Philomene Dumas was a prostitute working at a brothel on Rue Perthuis. Tumblety's lawyer, Bernard Devlin, at first tried to make out that Samard was a habitué of the brothel, a charge Dumas denied. Dumas claimed she was not paid by the police for the deception. She did testify that Tumblety had advised Detective Samard that the best way to get rid of the difficulty was for him to marry her. What I have not found is any confirmation of whether Dumas was, in fact, actually pregnant. From some of the newspaper reports, I believe not. Tumblety may have caught on to this deception 
because Bernard Devlin made it clear that he had not only never said anything about the medicine causing abortion, but that he specifically told Detective Samard that it would not. It would only have been effective, he claimed, to relieve headache, nervousness, and back pain. A chemical analysis of the medicine made by chemist John Burke claimed that it contained black hellebore, syrup, cayenne pepper, aloe, oil of savine, and cantharides. The mixture, he claimed, would have been sufficient to cause abortion, though he concurred that he could not determine the exact proportion of these ingredients. Another toxicologist by the name of Francois LaRue also examined the medicines. He said of the liquid that, in the amount of one soup spoonful, it is not toxic to humans. Bernard Devlin countered by saying that no witnesses could be produced to declare conclusively that the substances examined by the chemists were, in fact, even the ones tumbled he had given to Dumas. On September 28, 1857, Tumbledy was released on bail. No verdict could be reached, and the case was dropped. In June 1859, he's again found in Toronto, this time getting himself arrested and charged with leaving his horse untied after he rode a horse and buggy to a drugstore. While he was inside buying some medicine, his horse ran off, buggy in tow, and almost caused several accidents. It was believed that Tumbledy did this on purpose himself in order to attract attention and to advertise himself. Shortly thereafter, he was accused of practicing medicine without a license. He was fined $200, and as was written in 1920, he walked up to the clerk's seat in front of the judge, and taking out a great roll of bills from his pocket, he flung it in front of the clerk, saying, There, take your change out of that. Soon after, he returned again to Montreal, where he played another of his pranks to get talked about. He went into the principal drug shop on the main business street in Mont Montreal and bought some article, and then, putting his hand into his pocket to get money to pay for it, he pulled out a handful of coins, gold coins and half dollars, and quarters and small silver. Looking at his handful of this mixed money, he said loudly, so that all the people in the shop might hear him, how, how did I ever get this trash in my pocket? He picked the gold out in one hand and walked to the door and threw the handful of silver out the door and across the sidewalk onto the roadway, where there was soon a scramble for it. In 1860, he made his way eastward to St. John, New Brunswick, where he had another run-in with the law. This time, it was even more serious than what he had run into in Montreal, however. Sometime around September 7th or 8th, a carpenter by the name of James Portmore, who was suffering from a chronic stomach ailment for which he had been seeing a Dr. Humphreys, went to see Tumbledy. Following his visit, he brought home two vials, containing about a gill each, of medicine that looked like water, which he got from him. He took a teaspoonful of this in water three times a day. When first he took it, he cried out that that would burn the heart out of a man. He continued, however, to take it for nine or ten days regularly. He always complained of the same burning sensation in the stomach after taking it, and he lost his appetite, which previously was good. On the 17th, he went to Dr. Tumbledy again, and brought another bottle of medicine which looked like the former, and which he took in the same way. After he used this, he vomited and grew so sick that he had to take it to his bed. He could then eat nothing. His wife went for Dr. Tumbledy to see him, and when he came to the house, she charged him with having killed her husband by the medicine he had given him. 
She pointed to the bottles on the table and said the medicine was there and she meant to show it to the doctors. He said, very well, and took a bottle up and smelled it and then put it down again. He told her to apply hot water fermentations over her husband's kidneys and, he, and she did so. He then went away, promising to send a balsam at four o'clock to settle his stomach and immediately after she was gone, she missed the bottles. She told her husband Tumbledy had taken the bottles and he said, let the villain take them. She had not tasted the medicine and had no idea what it was. No one was in the room during this time but her husband, herself, and Dr. Tumbledy. Dr. Tumbledy did not send the balsam, nor did he return, but he sent word he was busy. Dr. Humphreys was then called in, and Dr. Botsford saw her husband some hours before he died. While sick at this time, he did not suffer much from his old complaint, but chiefly from the pain in his stomach. James Portmore died on September 26th. An inquest was held the next day, one in which Tumbledy cross-examined Mrs. Portmore. Speaking at his inquest, Dr. Humphreys said that the immediate cause of death was acute inflammation of the stomach, and that this was not a necessary consequence of his old disease and did not arise from it. The coroner concurred with Dr. Humphreys, finding that the inflammation was caused by some acid or other irritant introduced into the stomach, although they would not swear that it could not possibly be otherwise, and they could find no such substance in the stomach when they made the examination. Exactly what was in the medicine Tumbledy had given Portmore couldn't be determined on such short notice, but a druggist named Barker testified that Tumbledy had purchased from him a quantity of Irish moss, which was a type of seaweed, sarsaparilla, and mandrake. All in all, he said, the medicines Dr. Tumbledy got would do no harm if they did no good. The inquest finally found Tumbledy guilty of manslaughter, but that's not really a surprise. The foreman of the inquest was no fan of his, and three of the coroner's brothers, including Dr. Humphreys, who had previously been seeing the dead man, were on the jury. Timothy Reardon feels, in fact, that due to no substance being found in the man's stomach and the general ineffectiveness of any of Tumbledy's medicines, it might have actually been Dr. Humphreys who caused the man's death. In the end, Tumbledy fled St. John before his trial, going across the border to Calais, Maine. After a brief foray in Boston, during which he began his habit of dressing in pseudo-military uniforms, he traveled back down to New York City, where, predictably, he once more got himself in trouble. In February 1861, he had an office in the Fifth Avenue Hotel in New York, with his quote-unquote personal secretary, Charles Welpley. This was a habit of Tumbledy's, and nearly every city he stopped in he had a secretary, always a young man. The implications of that should be self-explanatory, but more on that later. Welpley had been Tumbledy's secretary in St. John and was left there when the doctor fled his trial. Apparently, he reunited with Tumbledy in New York. Tumbledy had Welpley arrested after he went to the Chemical Bank of New York and cashed a check, which he claimed he had gotten from the doctor, but which he claimed that Welpley had forged. When it wasn't resolved to his satisfaction, he sued the bank for cashing an unauthorized check. The chemical bank procured some scathing indictments of Tumbledy's character from various people and overruled his suit. It's theorized that Welpley might have had some grudge against the doctor for his treatment in New Brunswick, and that's why he ripped him off. In April 1861, Tumbledy seems to have moved to Washington, D.C., 
possibly with trips to New York. It was reported that he visited the 13th New York Infantry at Fort Corcoran in, in northern Virginia. Colonel Michael Corcoran, the commander of the fort, was one of the founders of the American Fenian Brotherhood. More on that later, too. On March 8, 1862, Tumblety filed suit against George Percival of the Canterbury Music Hall, charging libel and producing a program of the amusements at the Canterbury Music Hall, in which one of the farces proposed to be performed was entitled Dr. Tumblety's First Patient. The publication of his name in this connection, the doctor very positively stated was intended to ridicule him and his profession and to, and to bring into disrepute his character as a physician. He said that he had previously requested the proprietor of Canterbury Hall not to use his name on the stage in a burlesque performance. The doctor also exhibited his diploma to say he was a regularly authorized physician. The judge fined Mr. Percival $500. In February 1863, a New York soldier named Richard Render turned in a fellow Union soldier named Thomas Tift, who he said had procured forged papers indicating that he was unfit for military service. He also said that another soldier from his unit named George Torrey paid Tumblety $10 for discharge papers. He seems to have left Washington in May of 1863, traveling through Philadelphia and Albany, New York, before settling in Brooklyn. The Brooklyn Daily Eagle on May 6th described Tumblety as an unusually elongated young man with a mustache that has excited the admiration of young ladies, the envy of young men, and the astonishment of everybody else. Whether this remarkable hirsute appendage is a product of simple herbs or somebody's unguent is a secret known only to the Indian doctor himself. To add further to these characteristics which distinguish him from ordinary human beings, the doctor wears a butternut collared suit, the unusual width of his pantaloons being counterbalanced by the brevity of his coattails. A pork pie cap and a stout yellow cane complete the outfit of a singular personage. He is generally accompanied by a large yellow dog, long and lean, which looks so much like his master that one is supposed to know nearly as much as the other. The doctor has been seen on horseback, but generally travels on foot, accompanied by his faithful poodle. At times using the alias J.H. Blackburn, he played up on the Indian herb doctor title, and it is noted that he was known to be a great medicine man of the Salt Sun Senna tribe. In May 1864, he met a man named Fenton Scully. He offered to cure Scully's asthma for $15, but when the doctor's remedies failed, Scully returned and gave Tumblety a piece of his mind. Tumblety told him is that his condition was incurable then, and that he should just resign himself to being asthmatic forever. In response to this, Scully asked for his money back. He refused to leave when Tumblety asked him to, and then, the doctor then tried a course of physical treatment on the refractory patient with the most signal success. The prescription read, patient taken vigorously by the collar, well shaken after taken, sole leather pr promptly applied to the base of the dorsal vertebrae, result, prompt evacuation of the, pre of the premises by the patient. In other words, he kicked him down the steps. Tumblety appeared in court on May 6th, and the case was dismissed. The next year, Tumblety was in St. Louis, Missouri when back in New York, his past, and an unfortunate coincidence, was going to catch up with him. On April 14, 1865, Abraham Lincoln was assassinated. 
Assassin John Wilkes Booth was killed about two weeks later, and four other conspirators, Mary Surratt, Lewis Powell, David Harold, and George Atzerott, were later to be executed. There was a boy who was often used by John Wilkes Booth and company as a messenger and errand boy. On May 2, 1865, the police captured a young man on Court Street near the Brooklyn Borough Hall, which was City Hall at that time, since Brooklyn hadn't yet been incorporated into New York, who they thought was the errand boy. Well, the boy, as it turned out, was none other than Charles Welpley. He told the officers that not only had Harold been a druggist, which was known, but that he had been employed by Francis Tumblety when he was staying in Brooklyn. Welpley told the police that, Shortly before the arrival of the doctor here, he made the, the acquaintance of John Wilkes Booth in Washington, and through him became acquaint, acquainted with Harold. Harold, who had some knowledge of the drug business, was then out of employment, and the doctor, who was just then in need of a person of that sort to accompany him, offered Harold a chance to go with him, and Harold accepted the offer. When the doctor was compelled by the force of circumstances to ab abandon his lucrative position here, Harold went back to Washington, and this was the last that was heard of him until the commission of the fearful tragedy which has eternally linked his name to infamy. On May 5, 1865, it was reported that Tumblety had attended the funeral of Abraham Lincoln in Springfield, Illinois. The next day, he was arrested under the pretense of wearing a fake Union uniform, being attired in military regalia as he usually was. In reality, the arrest to Welpley's statement that Tumblety was acquainted with both John Wilkes Booth and David Harold, and a suspicion that, due to his Blackburn alias, he may have been the Dr. Blackburn who was implicated in the plot to infect the North with yellow fever. Tumblety was released on May 26th, remaining in prison for a week after the arrest of the actual Dr. Blackburn, Luke P. Blackburn of Kentucky. After release, Tumblety placed an article in the New York Times on June 10th, after three weeks' imprisonment in the old capital prison in this city, I have been unconditionally and honorably released from confinement by direction of the Honorable Secretary of War, there being no evidence whatsoever to connect me with the yellow fever or assassination plot, which some of the northern journals charged me of having some knowledge. While in imprisonment, I noticed in some of the New York and other northern papers a paragraph setting forth that the villain Herald who now stands charged with being one of the leading conspirators in the assassination plot, was at one time in my employ. This too is false in every particular, and I am at a loss to see how it originated or trace it to its origin. For the past five years I have had but one man in my employment, and he is yet with me, his character being beyond reproach. I never saw Harold to my knowledge, and I have no desire to see him. Another paper has gone so far as to inform the public that I was an intimate acquaintance of John Wilkes Booth, but this too is news to me, as I never spoke to Booth in my life or any of his family. After release, he made another stop in New York, and then returned to St. Louis for a brief time, before moving on to Cincinnati. While here, he wrote and published the first of his three autobiographies, A Few Passages in the Life of Dr. Francis Tumblety, the Indian Herb Doctor. By 1867, he had moved on to Pittsburgh, leaving the city, so it was said, to escape the consequences of trouble from two of his female patients. There were more stops in New York and Jersey City. In 1869, Tumblety took the first of several trips to Britain, 
one of which was later to propel him into infamy. He set up shop at 20 Montgomery Street in San Francisco the next year, where he claimed to be able to cure tuberculosis, a claim which certainly would have made him immortal amongst 19th century medicine men, if it were true. Sometime around 1870, he begins filing a succession of lawsuits against the United States government for wrongful imprisonment, but all of these went nowhere, being either thrown out of court or withdrawn by Tumblety before they amounted to anything. He moved around quite a bit over the next few years, getting in fights with newspapermen, and in 1873, picking up an 18-year-old boy named Henry Carr and going to Liverpool. In late November, Carr, not liking the gentleman's manner, left him and went back to London. He pawned an expensive gold chain, but in the absence of Tumblety, the chain was confiscated and Carr was discharged. Two years later, still in Liverpool, where he may have had relatives, he was implicated in the death of railwayman Edward Hanratty. His wife Anne testified at the inquest that her husband, similar to James Portmore 15 years before, had been under the care of another physician, a Dr. Alexander Bly, for what the doctor called congestion of the lungs and heart disease. On January 11, 1875, his wife went to see Tumblety, who offered to cure Hanratty for two pounds. On January 13th, then, he gave her a bottle of medicine, some pills, and some other herbs. She said she gave her husband a teaspoonful of the medicine and that within four hours he died, having broken into cold sweats and fainting several times. Anne said that when she returned to Tumblety, telling him her, her husband was dead and asking for a death certificate, he claimed to know nothing of the case and walked away. After she confronted him once more, he returned 30 shillings and again walked away. Tumblety did not attend the inquest into Hanratty's death as requested by Dr. Bly. In the end, it was found that Hanratty died from natural causes, but under ordinary circumstances, he might have lived some time longer. Very telling in this case is that Tumblety is reported to have told Dr. Bly he only sold medicine and did not know anything about disease. He came back to New York later that same year, traveling to Montreal for a bit, and then living with his sister and nephew in Vallejo, California. Around this time, Tumblety's fortunes seemed to begin to decrease. In 1878, he was jailed in New York for failing to pay a bill, and it is said that he started to get a shabby appearance and even began begging at times. Near Battery Park in New York, he met a young man named Lyons, who became his latest employee. He had access to nearly $100,000 worth of railroad and government bonds. Then Tumblety set sail on the steamer Montana, once more bound for Liverpool. In July 1880, Tumblety found that $7,000 worth of those bonds were missing. For whatever reason, he charged the boy's mother with having stolen them. When in the courtroom, he physically assaulted her attorney. Unsurprisingly, Tumblety lost this case, whereupon Mrs. Lyon's son filed charges of sexual assault against Tumblety. These charges were eventually dropped by him, however. Upon this, Tumblety sued William P. O'Connor, a broker, for illegally receiving stolen goods when he cashed out the bonds. He lost this case, too. So, apparently he's not a very good lawyer. In 1881, he is, he's again in court, this time charged with pickpocketing a government employee named Henry Govan in New Orleans. 
These charges are thought to have res resulted from an unwanted sexual advance. In 1887, while in Liverpool, Tumblety has an encounter with famed abolitionist Frederick Douglass, who wrote in a letter, I met a man in the street a day or two ago, who introduced himself to me as Dr. Tumblety. He spoke freely of yourself and Jacob. I shall want to know more of him if I be spared to see you again. He told me much about himself in a very brief space, for he seemed to have more tongue than ears. I could not get a word in anywhere, and you know I am too much in love with my own voice to like being suppressed and over-talked in that way. But enough of Dr. Tombledy. He seemed a good fellow after all. And so we come to 1888. Where exactly Tumbledy was early in the year, I'm not sure. But in June of that year, he once more went to Liverpool, and thence to London. Over a period of a few months, Tumbledy assaults several young men, Albert Fisher on July 27th, Arthur Bryce on August 31st, James Crowley on October 14th, and John Dowdy on November 2nd. He was arrested on November 7th and charged with four counts of committing an act of gross indecency and four counts of indecent assault with force and arms. Together, these charges would most likely refer to some sort of homosexual activity. Furthermore, on November 12th, he was charged with suspicion in the Whitechapel murders. Two men came and paid his bail on November 16th, and then on November 20th, a preliminary hearing was held at the Old Bailey, and a trial scheduled for December 10th. In the meantime, Tumbledy, true to form, used the alias Frank Townsend to travel to France and board a steamer, the La Bretagne, bound for New York. He arrived there on December 3rd. In the meantime, Several articles had appeared in the American and Canadian press about Tumbledy and Scotland Yard's suspicions of him, though absolutely nothing in the British press. Some theorize this may, this may have perhaps been due to Scotland Yard quashing any stories to conceal the fact that they had lost their chief suspect in what was easily the most notorious case in Britain at the time. It's noted that Scotland Yard was in contact with the police in the cities in which Tumbledy had stayed in, in America most notably those in New York and San Francisco. When Tumbledy arrived in New York, he was tailed by two detectives named Crow and Hickey. They determined that he was staying at 79 East 10th Street at a lodging house owned by a Mrs. McNamara. But on December 5th, a workman who lived nearby named by the name of James Rush contacted the police to say that Tumbledy had left the premises. Police did indeed find his room empty. It was on December 3rd, the same day the La Bretagne arrived in New York, that an article appeared in the Rochester Democrat and Chronicle and other newspapers carrying what is probably the most oft-quoted evidence in the Tumblety as Ripper argument, the statement made by Colonel C.A. Dunham of Washington. Dunham claimed that in 1861, he and several other military officers had gone to Tumblety's office for a dinner party. Then... Someone asked why he had not invited some women to his dinner. His face instantly became as black as a thundercloud. He had a pack of cards in his hand, but he laid them down and said, almost savagely, No, Colonel, I don't know any such cattle. And if I did, I would, as your friend, sooner give you a dose of quick poison than take you into such danger. He then broke into a homily on the sin and folly of dissipation, fiercely denounced all women, and especially fallen women. He then invited us into his office, where he illustrated his lecture, so to speak. 
One side of the room was entirely occupied with cases, outwardly resembling wardrobes. When the doors were opened, quite a museum was revealed. Tiers of shelves with glass jars and cases, some round and others square, filled with all sorts of anatomical specimens. The doctor placed on a table a dozen or more jars containing, as he said, the matrices or uteri of every class of women. Nearly a half of one of these cases was occupied exclusively with these specimens. Not long after this, the doctor was in my room when my lieutenant colonel came in and commenced expatiating on, on the charms of a certain woman. In a moment, almost, the doctor was lecturing him and denouncing women. When he was asked why he hated women so much, he said that when he was quite a young man, he fell desperately in love with a pretty girl, rather a senior, who promised to reciprocate his affection. After a brief courtship, he married her. The honeymoon was not yet over when he noticed a disposition on the part of his wife to flirt with other men. He remonstrated, she kissed him, called him a dear jealous fool, and he believed her. Happening one day to pass in a cab through the worst part of the town, he saw his wife and a man enter a gloomy-looking house. Then he learned that before her marriage, his wife had been an inmate of that and many other similar houses. Then he gave up all womankind. However, there are many problems with this account, not least of which is its source. His actual name was Colonel C.A. Dunham. He often wrote stories for the press under the name Sanford Conover, and Colonel George Margrave was another alias of his. As Sanford Conover, he'd often write some political piece, which would then be replied to and scathingly criticized by his alter egos, and thus made his own reputation as much as Tumblety did. Interestingly, Sanford Conover, itself an alias, often used Colonel C.A. Dunham as a fictional identity. Although this Colonel C.A. Dunham was a Confederate colonel, and the real one served on the Union side. Confusing, I know. He also was a major player in the 1865 Lincoln assassination trials. But Dunham also places Tumblety's Washington office on H Street, a rundown residential neighborhood that was a far cry from its real location at 7th Street and Pennsylvania Avenue. However, Timothy Reardon thinks this mistake is no accident. H Street was the location of Mary Surratt's boarding house, and given the stories that attempted to link Tumblety to the Lincoln assassination, it's possible that Dunham was merely trying to reinforce that notion. As to the supposed collection of uteri, it's possible this might have been inspired by the fact that Tumblety's office in New York apparently did have pictures of uteri and jars out front. Another problem, well perhaps not so much a problem as something notable, is the supposed misogyny and hatred of women that Donald mentioned. While it is true that Tumblety doesn't seem to have socialized with women, and in fact seemed rather nasty towards them, woman-hater seems a bit of a strong term. It seems more likely that as a homosexual, which he likely was, although he might have been bisexual, obviously newspapers don't really address such things, not directly anyway, but it seems likely that a homosexual probably would have been referred to as a woman-hater. And the matter of a wife, the Dunham account is the only one of many, many, many hundreds of articles about the about Tumblety mentioning anything about him having a wife. While most of the press seemed to believe the, the reports about Tumblety being the Ripper, 
not everyone thought it made sense. For example, James Pryor, who was the detective at the Fifth Avenue Hotel, Tumbledee's usual residence in New York, said, If I were to search New York for a man less likely to be guilty than a doctor, I wouldn't find him. Why, he hasn't the nerve of a chicken. He just had enough nerve to put some molasses and water together and label it as medicine. The biggest words being in Latin, and sell it. And on November 22nd, the Quebec Daily Mercury said in an article that the doctor is a very bad quack and an eccentric dresser, but is not the man for performing such terrible work as that done by the Whitechapel monster. It wasn't until the next year that Tumblety issued a statement to the press. In it, he insulted the British police. For 20 years I have been a regular voyager across the Atlantic. I go about London a great deal, and am familiar with every foot of it. In company with thousands of others, I inspect at Whitechapel. The London police, who, it might be incidentally remarked, are uniformed jackasses, think that all Americans wear slouch hats, and because I happened to wear one, and was an American, and because some unknown American doctor was suspected, I was arrested, and for no other reason. He then went on to imply that all the British police did was eat beef and drink stale beer. Then, in 1993, the so-called Littlechild letter, a letter from Inspector John Littlechild, formerly commander of Scotland Yard's Special Branch, to journalist George Sims, was discovered by author Stuart P. Evans. In it, Littlechild mentions a Dr. T as a suspect. He was an American quack named Tumblety, and it was at one time a frequent visitor to London, and on those occasions, constantly brought under the notice of police, there being a large dossier concerning him and concerning him at Scotland Yard. Although a psychopathia sexualis subject, he was not known as a sadist, which the murder unquestionably was, but his feelings toward women were remarkable and bitter in the extreme, a fact on record. Tumblety was arrested at the time of the murders in connection with unnatural offenses, and charged at Marlborough Street, remanded on bail, jumped his bail, and got away to Balloon. He shortly left Balloon and was never heard of afterwards. It was believed he committed suicide, but certain it is that from this time the Ripper murders came to an end. The press had a field the press had, had a field day reporting his flight from the law, but eighteen eighty eight was also virtually the end of Tumblety's career as a doctor. After all, who would go to see a doctor, especially one specializing in female problems, if there was the slightest inkling of him being Jack the Ripper? Sure, he could have set up operations under an alias, but he was also 58 and in poor health. Aside from an incident not long after his return to the States, there's not really much more to say. About 10.30pm on the night of June 4, 1889, Tumblety approached a young man named George Davis on 5th Avenue and asked to walk him home. When Davis refused, Tumblety persisted, whereupon the other man called him some name. In response, Tumblety struck Davis across the face with his cane, breaking it in two. The cane, that is. He, however, claimed that Davis had assaulted him first, after he refused to give him money. Francis Tumblety died, apparently of some heart condition, in the St. John's Hospital in St. Louis, registered as Frank Townsend, in 1903. His will left a total of $65,000 to various people, mainly relatives. As well, his first quote-unquote secretary, Mark Blackburn, was left $5,000.
as well as $10,000 to James Gibbon, Archbishop of Baltimore, and $10,000 to John Ireland, Archbishop of St. Paul, Minnesota. There was still nearly $150,000 held in banks that, that was not distributed in his will. Disregarded by the courts was a will he had made out in 1901 in Baltimore, leaving $1,000 to the Home for Fallen Women. Tumbledy is buried as, as Tumuldy, T-U-M-U-E-L-T-Y, in his hometown of Rochester. Aside from what has already been discussed, there's one further aspect of Tumbledy that should be discussed. This came up in passing in an 1890 article about another quack doctor named Dr. Gloucester. Tumbledy is mentioned, as well as, as, well as the fact that while in New York, he was under suspicion on account of a supposed connection with the advanced branch of the Irish National Party. It seems to imply that's what brought Scotland Yard inspectors to New York. Also supporting this idea is the fact that John Littlechild, as mentioned, was chief of Special Branch, and Special Branch was the anti-Fenian section of Scotland Yard. So what exactly was in the large dossier that he mentioned? Also recall that during his time in Washington, Tumbledy spent time at Fort Corcoran. Is it a coincidence that Colonel Michael Corcoran was a founder of the American Fenian Brotherhood? Or that the Rochester area seems to have been a hotbed of Fenian sympathies, an abortive invasion of Canada being launched in 1866? Furthermore, Archbishop Gibbons of Baltimore, a recipient of $10,000 in Tumbledy's will, was a well-known Fenian sympathizer, and although I can find no confirmation that Archbishop Ireland of St. Paul was, he was certainly very active in the Irish-American community. To me, he seems to have been very much a powerful character, one who was a shameless self-promoter and who had a penchant for name-dropping. Even a casual perusal of any of his advertisements in newspapers, or more particularly, any of his three autobiographies, reveals the letters of recommendation he had from virtually every luminary of the 19th century, from General William Sherman and Abraham Lincoln, to Napoleon III and a selection of British lords. Letters he had because he constantly wrote these people until he received them. But whatever he might have been, I think the notion of Tumbledy's being Jack the Ripper is completely false. I'll be honest, at one time I considered him a good suspect based on what little I knew of him, but the more I learned about him, his candidacy became less and less likely. First of all, the witnesses who saw the Ripper described a man of average height. Tumbledy was a large man, probably somewhere around 6'2". His appearance, too, is wrong. While, yeah, physically he does resemble the man he does resemble the man seen, he was far too flamboyant and would have stood out in a crowd. Then, there's the matter of his probable homosexuality which itself would likely discount him from being a killer of women. Finally, there's the fact that the statement that most makes him a candidate, the Dunham story, came from someone who almost habitually lied and perjured himself. I really, really didn't think this episode was going to be as long as it is. So, to end it out, I'll leave you with a review of Tumbledy's 1866 autobiography pulled out of the British press. I thought it was humorous, and a pretty good summation of what sort of character the Doctor was. A few passages in the life of Dr. Francis Tumbledy only cost three pence. The money is, however, worth much more than the pamphlet, the one noticeable thing in which, beside the name of its author, 
is the public importance he places on matters which concern him alone and never could have interested anyone else, unless there happens to be another tumblety about, which would be too much. And that's the end of this episode. As always, a list of sources consulted for this episode can be found in the show description, and photos associated with this week's story will be on my Instagram at Forgotten Darkness. If you have a question, a comment, or if you know a lesser-known story that you'd like to see covered, leave a comment on the podcast page, post it to the Facebook page at Forgotten Darkness Podcast, or send it to our email at ForgottenDarkness77 at gmail.com. I'm also on Twitter at Forgotten Darkness Podcast, and you can DM me ideas there. I also now have a Patreon at patreon.com slash forgdark, F-O-R-G-D-A-R-K. And there's links to all these pages in the show description as well. And yes, I am going to get on recording another Patreon episode. I know I've, I know I've kept saying it and kept intending to do it and I'm just not getting around to actually doing it and I just need to freaking get to it. So, sorry. <laughs> Until next time, this is Andrew signing off. Discover more shows like this one at straightupstrange.com.